Welcome to the University of Washington's Political Economy Forum. We bring together diverse scholars, policymakers, and citizens to discuss current public policy issues, to inform the public about them, and to find evidence-based solutions. Feel free to visit our website at uwpoliticaleconomy.com. We publish new episodes of this podcast every week. If you have questions or suggestions for discussion topics, please contact us on Twitter at ForumUW or email us at uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Hello, everyone, and a Happy New Year. Um, my name is Nicholas Wittstock, and in this episode, I speak to Professor Stephen Fogel. Stephen Fogel is chair of the Political Economy Program, the Ilhan New Professor of Asian Studies and a professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. And in this conversation, we speak about his most recent book, Market Craft, How Governments Make Markets Work. Hello, Professor Stephen Fogel. Hi, Nicholas. Hello, we're glad to have you on the podcast. Professor, you are the author of Market Craft, How Governments Make Markets Work. In this book, you basically argue that the notion of free markets and uh, much of the rhetoric around it is fundamentally misleading in that markets are never natural in any meaningful way. They're always created, always need rules and regulation to properly function. And um, I'd argue you go as far as to say that they are therefore always fundamentally political. Um, That's right. So as a matter of fact, um, you know, especially open, competitive, and dynamic markets require comprehensive regulation. Uh, why is that so? Well, for one thing, as Adam Smith noted, businessmen don't like to compete. Given mm -hmm. the choice, they would much rather collude. Um, and so it, the government actually has to force businesses to compete. And that's what antitrust rules do. So that's kind of like the essential way of thinking about it. But as you think about it more deeply, you realize that there's actually a whole vast array of, of regulations that are required to make you know, modern competitive markets work. You know, you've got corporate law, you've got intellectual property rights, um, and those aren't really optional in a modern economy. You, you know, it's, it's not like you can, well, have corporate law or don't have corporate law. I mean, you're going to have to have it. The question is, how is it going to be shaped? How is it going to be governed? So in that sense, it's really essential to the functioning of a modern market economy. And certain markets simply wouldn't exist uh, if that wasn't the case. Exactly. That's a whole other category. So mm -hmm. so first you have like just that, that, mar that modern market systems require a whole regulatory infrastructure, mm -hmm. right? or a system of governance. I guess I should call it governance because it's not really just government regulation. It's also business practices, it's also social norms. But what you're alluding to is there's also lots of what I call fabricated markets where you couldn't really imagine um, that market existing without a kind of a conscious planning, right? So it's not even evolutionary, right? It's, you know, so if you think about like um, FCC auctions of spectrum, right? That has to be deliberately created, um, or um, or mortgage-backed securities, the markets that we loved, you know, we we've learned to love. Um, also, you know, deliberately fabricated, um, and so uh, so more and more markets are in that category of kind of of, of fabricated markets where where they really were are engineered uh, mm. from the beginning. 
Yeah, so critical response to your basic argument may be that, you know, few free marketeers argue for anarchy or anything like that. Um, of course, states give rise to markets or, you know, provide legal frameworks and standards of the type that you're discussing here uh, for markets to operate within. And, um, you know, so further, when free marketeers argue that state intervention is generally to be avoided, they do not really argue for a lack of rules in the broad sense of regulation that you're talking about here, but rather against top-down imposition of rules. So rules should rather emerge from the interaction of those commercial actors that actually have a direct stake in the outcome. So is there not a way in which you're possibly strawmanning the free market case here a bit? Um, so I'm going to plead not guilty on that one, but I see <laughs> your point. Um, I like to think of the argument as kind of like teetering on the borderline between utterly obvious and completely radical. Um, <laughs> Okay. And um, and the obvious part, I think, is what you're alluding to, which is that no one actually thinks that completely free markets exist. Even the most ardent market liberal will argue that there are certain fundamental, you need a, you know, you need a system of rule of law, you need protection of private property, right? That's the basis. But they will say, like, then you're good, right? Then Then let the market rule. And what I'm saying is that the basic, regulatory um, governance infrastructure is complex kind of by necessity, right? That it's not, it's not a minimal, right? It's not just the protection of property. There's infinite array of things that have to be governed one way or the other. Um, and, and, that, and that's really what characterizes the modern economy. And so it's not, um, and I also understand the point about like it being a, a, a top-down imposition. The way I would, um, I think, counter that is by suggesting that the alternative to government regulation of markets is not the free market. And this was kind of embedded in your question, but the privately governed market, right? And the privately governed market is not a free market, right? It's, mm. a, it's, it's a market thoroughly sullied by fraud, um, by imbalances of power, by deception. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the truly privately governed market. And so there's kind of this paradox, which is that government regulation can be constraining, it can be overbearing, right? It can actually impede market behavior. On the other hand, it's also prerequisite to a vibrant competition, right? It's, it's the it, it's the only it's it's both a source, for example, of regulatory capture, right? You can have right. a government that's serving interests, but it's also the only solution to regulatory capture, right? It's the government that can force private sector away from rent extraction and um, toward value creation. Um, and so that's just a dilemma, right? It's 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 it, getting rid of the government is not the solution, right? Better yeah. government is the solution. And so that's one of the areas where I think the market liberals go fundamentally wrong um, is that they want to, you know, they want, they say, well, government can go wrong. So let's get rid of the government. Then we'd have a free market. And I'm saying, no, you wouldn't. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, you're a scholar of Japanese uh, politics and political economy as well. 
And uh, in the book, you compare U.S. market institutions with uh, those of Japan. And you argue that neither is really a setup of, uh, or, or is neither setup that is present in those political economies is more akin to, you know, free market in any meaningful way. But as you pointing out here, they just differ in how markets are governed. Um, and you make this, um, yeah, provocative point that if Japan were to re-engineer its economy more closely um, to, the, to the U.S. model, um, which is usually heralded as this more market liberal form of regulation, J Japan would actually have to regulate more than it does at the moment. Um, so to make this a little bit more concrete, could you compare a little bit, uh, maybe using a specific um, market or market institution, how does this work exactly? What institutions govern Japanese markets and how do these differ uh, from US institutions? So to take a, just a half step back, um, mm -hmm. I'm kind of doing, you're right, the, the US and Japan are my two cases. And I'm doing, I think, two things with those cases. One is I am making a like a con concrete comparison and contrast mm -hmm. between the ways that they are governed. And I'll come back to that because that's the that's the essence of your question. But I just want to also say that I'm also making the analytical argument we were talking about a minute ago about, about market governance. And each of these cases kind of uh, performs a different function, right? The US case is illustrating that a quote unquote liberal market economy, a more competitive economy, which does differ from the Japanese in, in that sense, in that, that you have more competitive financial markets, more competitive labor markets, more competitive product markets. That basic simple characterization, which comes out of like the varieties of capitalism, I think is, you know, maybe a simplistic generalization, but basically right. Um, but what I'm saying um, is that we think of the US as kind of the closest thing we have to like a free market or a liberal market economy. And my point is, paradoxically, if, if you think in the market liberal worldview, or if you're come from the, like the market craft, this is totally, I think becomes obvious, which is that it's more regulated, more governed, right? Um, than another one. And I think that's an important, uh, important in point analytically, because we often think of liberal market systems as kind of like an institutional void. Like that's how we would all behave in a state of nature. And what I'm saying is there is no state of nature that um, only in a particular environment do you get, for example, a higher and fire labor market like we have in the United States or something closer to a market for corporate control like we have. That's the, that's the, uh, that's created through the accumulation of various government regulations, business practice, and social norms. In the Japanese case, I'm doing something else. I'm saying, as you suggested, I'm saying, let's do this thought experiment. Let's say that the Japanese wanted to become more like the United States and have more competitive markets in these various areas. What would they have to do? And I'd say, well, the market liberal view, which is what people have been saying about Japan for decades is, just go to the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, tell them whatever you've been doing, just stop it, right? <laughs> then you will become a liberal market economy. You can be real capitalists like us and you can get rich and everything will be fine. And I'm saying, first of all, I would say Japan should not be emulating the United States, but if it were, it would have to create lots of new regulations and rules in order to do that. And so to get to your question of a concrete example, one would be a market for corporate control, 
right? If you want to have a situation in which you can actually buy and sell companies or you can have uh, takeover bids, you can't just say, okay, as of tomorrow, we're going to say companies can take over other companies. Go for it. Everybody start. What would happen? Nothing would happen, right? You have to create, right? You have to change corporate law to reflect a more um, of a shareholder model. You've got to change business practices. You've got to change social norms, right? All of those things would happen, would have to happen in order to create what we think of as like the heart of capitalism, right? The epitome of capitalism is a capitalist system in which there's a market for capital, right? Mm. Where you can buy and sell firms. And what I'm saying is why you might think of that as the epitome of the free market in the, the concrete sense, it's exactly the opposite. And so the Japanese case is fascinating because if you take that laundry list and I have this table where I show, these are all the millions of things Japan would have to do to create a more uh, competitive like capital market. Mm -hmm. They've done a bunch of them. You know, they're kind of halfway there. Um, and that makes it a fascinating case study. You can, because you can see, oh, they tried this, 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 and this they to, to, to put together that package. And it didn't work, right? It didn't work because it wasn't the full package. The business practices didn't change completely. The social norms didn't change completely. And you can say, I could run this, you know, we, it would take us all day, but I could run through the same story with the Japanese creation of venture capital. They've been trying that for 40 years. Again, kind of going down the list of what would create a, you know, a Silicon Valley venture capital ecosystem. And they never got there. And finally, one Japanese bureaucrat said to me, you know, we've been trying to create Silicon Valley in, the, in Japan for 40 years. We've finally decided we're going to give up and we're just going to go to Silicon Valley instead. Uh -huh. And the same with labor markets, right? You could say, okay, let's have a, 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 a labor market for executives where you know somebody can leave sony any day and go work for toyota or vice versa right okay start what would happen nothing right um and it's 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 not just a matter of changing laws it's a matter of changing like legal practices and obviously business practices um so that's the point i'm trying to make in that chapter is that is that um that it would be uh, a very Kind of a holistic process to create what we think of as something uh, approximating a free market, right? like a free market for labor for for executives, is actually um, the product of governance, not the lack of it. Hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, there is another interesting section of your book that discusses how the language around states and markets obfuscates how markets are always the product of rules. Um, you know, you make this case, there's no pre-political market. Um, and yet, you know, we talk about government intervention in the market after the fact, as if, you know, the market was there all along or redistribution, assuming that market outcomes are somehow natural um, with the government only stepping in after the fact. Um, I mean, on the one hand, that's interesting that there is this strong distinction that people uh, seem to be making in their minds when they talk about either the government or the market. Um, but could you elaborate a little bit on how such misconceptions hinder us from properly understanding events, but also keeps us from creating um, sound policy, which you describe as market craft in this in this context? Well, if you just start with intervention, and this one fascinates me because mm -hmm. 
it's kind of, you, if you were a market liberal and you really believed that government was an interference, right, yeah. in the market, this is a great word for you, right? Because it, 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 it has a negative connotation. It says the government is somehow invading some kind of territory where it doesn't belong. The fascinating part is that this language is shared by the left and the right. Um, the, the, those who argue for a government role in the economy say, well, we have, to we have to explain to the world that the government has to intervene. And what I'm saying is that's a really lousy choice of language to make your case, right? You should say the government, you should say the government needs to, to, to take its natural role in the, uh, in the market and, um, and perform it um, effectively or something like that, right? To get to your point about policy, that's what I do try to do in this book. I try to take the, the conceptual, the misconceptions and tie them to policy errors. Right. Um, and I think, I, I hopefully am, am able to do that, right? But if you see the problem in whatever, in advanced industrial countries, in transition, you know, post-communist transition countries and developing countries, as you see it as one of government intervention, hmm. then you are biased towards solutions of removing that government intervention, right? Hmm. As opposed to if you see the problem as one of crafting market institutions, as one of, of, of market craft, right? That conceptual frame leads you to a whole different set of, 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 of remedies right? mm. that is much broader, right? And so, so that's just an example of how I think it can get in the way of the solutions. And redistribution, pre-distribution is another great one because even, again, even on the left, we think like, okay, the market does all this damage. It creates all this inequality. So what we're going to do is we're going to take that inequality and then we're going to remedy it. And what I'm saying is I'm not against any of that. I'm just saying that's a very narrow way to understand the problem of inequality, because what you're assuming is that the market allocation of rents, of returns, is natural, right? And you're saying, okay, let's let the market do its thing. It's going to create all kinds of inequality. And then we're going to try to fix it after the fact. And that's leaving out the essence of the whole story, right? Which is well, how did the market governance system generate greater or lesser inequalities, right? That's the pre-distribution part. Um, and so that framing can give you a very limited understanding of what the problem is and what the solution is. And a market governance perspective expands that. And it says, let's not just look at how we can correct inequalities. Let's look at what's generating them in the first place. And you realize that there's nothing natural about that. And furthermore, that the pre-distribution governance, right, that your particular labor market system, your financial system, may be creating more inequality than is justified by market, right? Um, that, they, that may be the essence of what's creating greater inequality. And it kind of attacks that basic assumption that those inequalities are necessary for markets to work. Who knows? Maybe, but maybe it's just rampant rents to keep. Maybe the powerful and the wealthy have rigged the system. And if you're not going to look at that, you're missing kind of the heart of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Just to make this a little bit more concrete for our listeners, um, what exactly would be pre-distribution policies in the context of, of, of labor policy, for example, when you speak about things like inequality? So instead of, you know, focusing on welfare spending, uh, tax and transfer kind of stuff that you were alluding to in the beginning, 
uh, of your answer, uh, which is right an example of trying to step in at the end of a market process. How would how would it work to to start at the beginning? Okay, so we've been kind of dancing around a, a core core issue here. Um, so let me be explicit, right? I mean, you've said this a couple of times that markets are political. But yeah. what I would argue is that market governance is a balance of power, right? Yeah. Um, so that markets are governed, are, are power relationships, right? And so if you take the, uh, the, the worker and the employer, right? Yeah. That relationship is a balance of power, right? And that's embedded in the market governance system. Everything we've been talking about, the regulation, the business practices, and the social norms, right? That governs that power balance. Now, a market liberal would say that there is some that there exists some point of equilibrium, right? Where there is no, uh, you know, there's there's no tampering, right? There's no intervention in this market. There's there's there, there's a free market. That's what you know, and people are getting. They're, you know, they're marginal, they're being paid for their marginal productivity and everything is good. And that is fair, it's neutral and it's free. And I'm saying nonsense. I'm saying you've got a spectrum of market governance systems that run from a spectrum of totally biased in favor of the employer to totally in favor of the employee. Now you might say with the latter, it doesn't exist in the world, but at least at the theoretical level it does, right? You, you, could, you could imagine, right? That, um, and so, that's what the pre-distribution is, right? So to get to your question, what would that mean concretely? That's rules about how you form unions, like all the arcane details are parts of that power, power balance, right? Um, if you say that a union can, or right, let's say, can, you, can a union mandate that everyone who works for this firm has to be a member of that union, right? If you say yes, that favors, that makes the union more powerful. If you say no, that makes the union less powerful, right? Is there a free market solution, right? Does, does, does the great God of the marketplace tell you which way to go? No, it's a decision, right? And so my point is there's an accumulation of lots of decisions about how you govern that are going to affect outcomes like wages, for example, right? And, and it's actually impossible to state where on that power balance is like either you know, fair or neutral. But what you can say, for example, is that those rules in the United States are biased too far in the direction of favoring employers. And maybe you should move that dial a little bit towards a more employee friendly right, set of governance. Um, mechanisms. And who knows, maybe current labor shortages will, 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 will move that dial a little bit in that direction. Uh, but what I'm saying is that, that, that pre-distribution market governance is a relationship of power. And all those rules, both formal and informal, um, help to define the balance of power. Right? And it's our whatever duty, um, you know, as, as democracies, to make those decisions and we can do we can do a, a great job or we can do a terrible job um but that's going to affect wages right and so if you had if you had better labor market governance or if you had labor market governance that was a little less biased towards employers then um, workers would be making more money maybe if you had better corporate governance maybe executives would be making less money right and you so you'd have less free distribution inequality right if you had different rules of market governance 
absolutely. I think the discussion you you mentioned this in the context of Japan um, in your book, the role that social norms play here too in exactly this um, pre-distribution moment, right? That it's not necessarily obvious. Or, or social norms, whatever, you know, rules of appropriateness determine how, possible. I mean, may not completely determine, but certainly influence what people think is okay to be a wage differential between different uh, employees in a company, for example, you know, like how, how high could CEO pay be, that might just um, not necessarily only be uh, determined by um, how competitive labor markets are or something like that. But it's also a question of what do people think is appropriate. And I thought that was a really interesting discussion. Yeah, I went to this talk where there was, um, you know, an American investment banker who very, who I don't think saw the, the irony in what he was saying, but he was saying, you know, how can we tolerate these, the undercompensation of Japanese CEOs? Mm. And, uh, and I was thinking, well, let's see, Japanese CEOs are, let's say, paid roughly 50 times that of the average worker and US CEO 200 to 500 times, whatever, you know, the, the numbers change over time. But I'm just saying they're like, as a normal citizen thinking, well, are the uh, Japanese CEOs underpaid or are the American CEOs overpaid, right? Um, uh, and, and what, what makes us think that, right? You know, one way or the other. And I guess I'm, I'm just agreeing with you that part of that is just our sense of, of what's um, appropriate, right? And that certainly has changed over time and it varies, it varies over time and it varies across nationally. And it clearly, those differences are generated by something other than just the marginal productivity of those executives. Right. Right, absolutely. So I want to close on a discussion about the uh, digital economy, which you mentioned as a market craft success story in your book, as opposed to a success story of, you know, rogue free market entrepreneurship or something like that, that it's sometimes invoked as, you know, you know stressing the role of venture capital and um, visionary technologists in Silicon Valley. Could, could you explain that a little bit? So what, what is it about the digital economy or how was market craft instrumental in harnessing that um, new frontier or whatever you want to call it in the US? So I, I, I make that argument in the context of my US case where I'm trying to really use the contrast between uh, the digital revolution and the financial crisis as showing just how big the stakes are in market craft. Like if you right. do this right, great things can happen. If you do it wrong, terrible things can happen. And instead of saying like U.S. market craft is always good or bad, I'm illustrating that even within the United States, we have positive and negative examples. And that in fact, if you look at, you know, leaving COVID aside, if we like, like what was the greatest disaster of American economy um, in recent decades and the greatest success story, right? That's the financial crisis and the digital revolution. And each was the product of American homegrown market craft. So to get to your question, I'm arguing that the digital revolution emerged out of a particular set of policies and institutions that was largely based um, in the United States, not exclusively, but largely, right? And that the government had a huge role in this. I'm not suggesting that this was some grand design, 
right? That somebody had this figured out ahead of time um, and put all of these pieces together. But I am saying that a series of government policies had positive effects that created the trajectory of this revolution. So to be specific, you've got government R&D, right? That uh, some of it was military, but also um, uh, government, uh, some of, a lot of like Silicon Valley venture capital actually started out with seed money from the government, right? Um, and and uh, you have um, the government as a uh, launch market, right? That again, some of this was military, but government procurement drove some of the innovation and technology. So huge role there, but some of the underappreciated aspects uh, would be like uh, the antitrust policies and telecommunications reform. So just to kind of try to, to just flesh those out. Please. In the case of antitrust, um, there was a huge debate about whether it was a good idea or a bad idea to break up AT&T, right? Um, and those who were against it said, well, this is like the heart of innovation because you had the whole Bell Lab system, you had this kind of R&D infrastructure. But with the benefit of hindsight, um, the fact that um, the United States antitrust policy would not allow AT&T or IBM to both make their own semiconductors and sell them on the free market, right? We didn't allow that. And some points, right, um, in the 80s, we thought that created a kind of a disadvantage with us vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese because they had these integrated electronics firms, right? And so we thought, oh, we have this huge disadvantage. Turns out, right, Many decades later, you could realize actually the genius in the American system because what, what not allowing those integrated electronic firms to dominate um, innovation was what broke up the value chain, right? And created what some people called the Wintelis system, right? Where you had um, innovation, not just by the assembly firms, but also by the suppliers, like semiconductor firms like Intel and software firms like Microsoft, right? And so you had a disaggregation of the value chain, which really is essential to the form that the internet revolution took in the United States. So antitrust policy was actually uh, critical. And then I, I mentioned the case of AT&T, but that was not just about the innovation, that was also about the telecommunications side right, which is by creating competition in telecommunications, we dramatically brought down the cost of communications, which again was essential to the internet revolution because if you're paying, you know, by, by the minute, many of the applications that we know and love today never would have, right, emerged, right, if telecommunications costs were so high. By bringing them down, you enable kind of like the bottom-up innovation on the, on the user side, right? Instead of like letting the behemoths, the, the IBMs and the AT&Ts control that, um, by uh, bringing the prices down, you allow the innovation that became part of that digital revolution. So again, I'm not arguing that there was a master plan, but I'm arguing that each of these policies um, actually had a positive impact and that together they gave the digital revolution a particular form uh, that it took in the United States. So just coming back to um, the, the genius here of the U.S. system that you were describing. So what is it that allowed uh, the United States to uh, pursue policies here in this specific industry that turned out to be so beneficial 
But as you say, in others, it seems like, you know, regulation is either, you know, completely captured or at the very least dysfunctional. So, so how is it that there are such dramatic differences across industries? So um, I think you gave a hint at the answer to your question there. When, uh, but, but that's what I think is fascinating, right? Because these are both American cases if we're comparing this to the financial revolution. And I think two of the big differences, and this is just like bread and butter um, political science here, right? But is the capacity and the autonomy of the government. Uh-huh. And so we often look cross-nationally, we say, well, this, this country has um, greater state autonomy, meaning that the government has a, a greater distance from penetration by interest groups, right? Less capture, right? Or capacity, like the, 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 the training um, and the um, functionality, right? Um, and the coherence of the bureaucracy. And what I'm saying is while that might vary across countries, it also varies within countries. And so if you compare those two sectors, what you had was greater state autonomy and greater state capacity in the uh, digital revolution case um, and less capacity and less autonomy in the financial case. I think it's easiest to see that by looking at the financial regulation side where we had a very uh, dysfunctional and disaggregated um, financial regulatory system which made it vulnerable to capture, which made it re- vulnerable to regulatory arbitrage, you know, uh, financial institutions kind of a, a forum shopping um, for regulators. Um, and you had a regulatory system which was largely captured by the industry it was supposed to be governing. Um, so that's the negative case, right? Whereas you compare, and I think that maybe breaking up AT&T is as good an example as any, right? Um, the political pressure, if anything, was going the other way, right? Mm. Would have said like you, you should keep AT and T together, right? Because that's where the money and the power was. But you had relatively autonomous um, decision makers in the Department of Justice that just did what they thought was right. Um, and similarly, on terms of the R and D side, you know, you know, there are strengths and weaknesses to the military-industrial complex, but you do have a relatively powerful um, and competent bureaucracy that was able to channel to, to make investments that were looking looking for the for the long term. So that to me is kind of fascinating how you can you can have you can have kind of both of those uh, within the United States, and I think it's a hint at the quality of the policies that you get, which is that when you have greater autonomy and greater capacity, you tend to have better policies. So let me ask one final question. I think. Um... Everyone uh, who, who follows these kind of themes hears a lot about um, different ideas of how to re-regulate elements of the digital economy, specifically, you know, debating uh, antitrust cases against different uh, big tech companies. Are there important regulatory dynamics that relate to the digital economy that you feel like people are not paying enough attention to? I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think uh, it's getting a lot of attention. So, you know, attention is not our problem um, for once, but there's a lot of very tricky decisions. You know, this is a a market craft challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it was, I think it's fair to say that until recently, it wasn't getting the attention it deserved. Like for example, antitrust, I don't think people fully appreciated how critical antitrust policy is towards the dynamism of the American economy. 
but for better or for worse, you know, people get it now, right? So this is, it, it's become, it's, it's very high on the agenda. There is some bipartisanship in that both Republicans and Democrats, while they have different views, you know, they, they both appreciate that some changes need to be made in the antitrust arena. So this is kind of one of the more interesting areas. Um, but the devil's in the details and it's not simple, right? Because you can say, well, um, you know, Amazon or Google, you know, pick your favorite target, right? Huge, too powerful, problematic, we all get that. But then what are you gonna do about that, right? Do you wanna break it up? Um, there, right, even sometimes, you know, the remedy could be worse than the problem. And so, so there's easier things and harder things. Like, for example, I think the evidence is overwhelming that our um, approach to mergers has been too permissive in the past. So there, I think the idea that we have to be much more rigorous in approving mergers, particularly, for example, uh, big tech firms that are buying up their, the, the companies that would be their future competitors, right? We, we have to be much more vigilant about that. You know, so that seems pretty obvious. In terms of anti-competitive practices, again, I think it's pretty clear that um, whatever, again, pick your favorite target, Google or Amazon are getting away with things that they shouldn't in terms of stifling competition. But in order to address that, you actually need to do a lot of research, right? To, to understand exactly which practices and, and what kinds of, of remedies. Um, so that's gonna be a complicated disentangling, but, uh, but I do think that, that market craft is the essence uh, of what it's all about. Um, I think we're gonna have to move away and again, uh, back to your question, I don't think it's a lack of attention. A lot of people are saying this, but we have to move away from kind of a crude consumer welfare standard, right? Where we say, well, um, you know, we just have to look at prices. Um, and if prices aren't going up, then there's not a problem with competition. But again, it's less obvious um, what the solution is. Like, okay, so if that's not the standard, then then how are you going to bring in consideration considerations of political power, right? Um, right, because market power does create, uh, translate to political power is what I was saying. Or what? Do you, how are you gonna bring into considerations of labor markets, right? Labor market monopsony. Um, you can say, well, those things should be part of the considerations of antitrust, but that doesn't answer the question of like, how do you put them in the calculus? And I think what people are leaning towards is that there isn't a, there's no right way to do a sophisticated economic analysis of that, that maybe we have to go back to kind of more structural solutions where you say, for example, Amazon, you can run a marketplace, great. You can compete on that marketplace, but maybe we shouldn't allow you to do both. Maybe you should have to choose, right? Uh, because if you're creating a marketplace and then competing on that, there is such an inherent conflict of interest there, right? Um, that it's not, you know, tenable in the long term, particularly when, for example, Amazon is such a core infrastructure of, you know, U.S. markets. Yeah. Um, so that may be the way we have to go is towards actually kind of simpler uh, principles rather than detailed economic analysis. Professor Stephen Fogel, thank you so much for being part of the Political Economy Forum podcast. My pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to the Political Economy Forum podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like our special podcast on election security, Neither Free Nor Fair, which is hosted by Professor James Long and is also available on all major platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wittstock. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact uwpoliticaleconomy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.